0: Thank you. Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Callaway.
1: I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash.
2: With us today is Tanner Linsley. Tanner builds open source software that is currently used by hundreds of thousands of developers at companies ranging from Fortune 500 companies all the way down to startups and indie developers. Welcome, Tanner.
1: So uh, Tanner, um, before we jump into the meat of things, would you give our listeners maybe a little bit of an introduction to yourself? You know, uh, let them know how you got started in the industry.
3: Sure. I mean, I I liked the introduction you guys did. So thanks for that. I don't know if there's a ton more that I can add. I started developing um, WordPress sites like 10, 12 years ago and uh, decided that that was a lot of fun. And before you knew it, I was getting into JavaScript and Angular, and then migrating to React, and then needing open source libraries that were better than what I could find. So I started building a lot of open source libraries, mainly because I was solving difficult problems at my startup. Uh, I started a company with two other individuals. I was number three co-founder at Nozzle. Uh, It's Nozzle.io, and there we have essentially built as you know a a saas product that reverse engineers google search rankings we are a rank tracker um which is a very common tool in the seo analytics industry so we we deal with a lot of data and a lot of state a lot of tables and data visualization so i basically just described all of the reasons why my libraries exist so that's uh that's kind of how i got started
1: so what are, what are you working on these days? You're, you mentioned Nozzle. Uh, what's a sort of like a day, daily experience for you?
3: Oh, man. You know, wake up early, get in the office, and just kind of hit it hard. We're developing a lot of new features for Nozzle right now. We, uh, we just did a limited time deal on a platform called AppSumo, which was an interesting experience. Um, really, initially, we had a lot of bigger but fewer enterprise clients big businesses. Uh, But when we went on AppSumo, we kind of flipped that table around and uh, now we have hundreds of, I mean, even more, like every day it seems like we are just of a lot of little smaller clients, right? Scaling that is very different than scaling uh, very few clients. So we've been just rolling out a lot of new features and bulletproofing a lot of our systems that would uh, otherwise cause a lot of customer support. So... You know, and you have, when you have that many users, you don't want to be hearing from them as much as possible, making sure they're happy. So, yeah, I mean, in, in the last three or four weeks, I've had my hands in everything, it seems. Uh, dashboarding, uh, including charts, tables, data management there, uh, state management. I've been in the router up to my neck. Um, I have gone through authentication and an authentication overhaul with Firebase and Jots and man, it just never ends. And forms. Now I'm in forms. It's just like, I'm all over the place, you know, trying to just kind of upgrade everything up until about a year ago. Uh, we, it was just me. Um, and I, I hired my first front end dev about a year ago to be on the front end team with me. So it's been a whirlwind, but that's kind of what my day still looks like to this day. It's just like ship new features as fast as possible and make sure that everything's working great. So. So
0: you've got a lot of open source packages out there, especially in the React ecosystem. It seems like when I'm looking for a particular uh, functionality or feature that that might be useful for what we're working on on front end development, uh, looks like you, it sounds like your name comes up more often than not on on some library that's going to be of use for us is is this a chicken and the egg thing uh for what you were working on with nozzle is it nozzle came first and then you uh open sourced the the uh features that you needed or you had already been in the open source world and have adapted those for use in your your day-to-day enterprise
3: it depends on which project you're talking about right um like React table was my very first open source project that really kind of made a dent. And in that situation, it was Nozzle that needed it before I needed it. I wasn't looking for, you know, to, I wasn't looking to, I want to enter the table grid space in React. I just, that wasn't my goal. And I knew open source libraries were a lot of work, obviously not as much as I know now, but, um, <clears throat> but I wasn't looking to do that. I just needed to solve a problem. A lot of the reasons that I built these libraries because I just needed to move forward with something I was doing at Nozzle and the tools that I had were either just too clunky or they didn't exist or I had vetted every single library that I could find in the ecosystem and they're just not that great. Now, some of them are, are great, you know, but they just don't cover all the use cases or maybe they weren't ke- keeping up with the technology. They weren't, you know, moving into hooks or... They weren't embracing headless UI and headless utilities as much as I wanted them to. So some of it is just kind of parallel, you know, with like React Query, I did have the mentality of like, you know what, I would really like to solve asynchronous state management for everyone, as many people as I could. And I also had that problem myself at Nozzle. And so when I built React Query, I built it internally first, but as if I was building an open source package. So kind of did them both at the same time
2: it just kind of depends so you said that um the open source libraries are are a lot of hard work um i i mean what about them is is hard i mean because like i'm sure a lot of people think that you can just you write some code you stick it in into github and ta-da, it's open maybe put an mit license on it or something it's open source you're done right what what all goes into having an open source library
3: you know, it's like a drug. Like you said, it's really easy to get going. You're like, yeah, I can just slap some code into a repository, you know, take that, take that first sip. <laughs> it's really easy to do that. And, you know, once you get it up there, you're like, wow, well, now I need to share it. So you'll share it with people. Right. And people are like, Hey, this is cool. But now you've already entered the world of sales. Right. Now you have, you're convincing other developers to use some package that you have. So, We've already accumulated sales and probably a little bit of marketing. And that just grows with the project over time. If you want your project to get popular, you have to know how to do some sales and marketing. And uh, by that point, you're going to have some users and they're going to hate you if you don't provide some good documentation. So now you are a writer and you have to write great documentation that is not only informative, but hopefully uh, entertaining to some extent too, because documentation is the worst thing to read on the planet. So, um, you know, now you're a writer, you're a salesman, you're a marketer, um, and we haven't even gotten into like, you know, how do you manage sem versioning and how do you have an effective CI pipeline? Um, decisions like, uh, you know, you could still be shipping just a module that says console log hello, right? You, we haven't even gotten into the aspects of like what makes a software. Like a piece of software, great. Uh, there's so much that goes into designing an API that is composable and small and simple and uh, utilitarian. It's you know very hyper focused. There's a lot that goes into testing that library and providing types. <laughs> and there's you know it just snowballs until there's just you basically are running a business. That's what an open source library is. If it gets popular enough, it is a business that more often than not is not paying its maintainers to maintain it. So,
2: right. So, so what keeps you going? Why go through all that effort for something that you're not even getting, I mean, you're not getting paid for it. So why not? You could just make it for you and then just have your thing. Right. That's a
3: great question. So in the beginning, you know, you're not probably not going to get anything for those projects, but if you're in a situation where it's um, I would say synergistic to something else you're working on. Now it becomes a a massive benefit. Let me give you a situation. You are a, I'll give you my situation. You are the only front end developer at your startup. You are in charge of everything from the, from consuming the API and designing it, helping design it down to the user clicking the button, right? You need as much help behind you as you can get. Uh, And, When I stepped into that position, I knew that if I could build a library that was good enough, that people would use it and that they would in turn contribute back to it and help me test it and improve it and continually keep it up to date if they relied on it enough and if it was popular enough. In a way, I'm outsourcing, you know, a very small part of my application the maintenance of that to the internet. Right. So while I might've been the only front end developer for six years at my company, the first six years, I didn't feel that way because of all the people I had rallying behind my projects, you know, these very crucial kind of turnkey points of my application, you know, tables and data visualization and whatnot. So Um, that's a great win and a great benefit, I think out of the gate where sure you might not be being compensated for it, um, in money in terms of money, but you are being compensated for it in terms of your own sanity and time and help and everything like that. And it can be beneficial to your company as well. So that's how it started. Right. But at some point, uh, it can just become so taxing that you need more motivation. And I think it's only healthy that that exists, you know and this is usually the point where you know the person says well i'm going to go start an open source company and raise a gazillion dollars and uh there's a lot of people doing that and good for them i for one do not think that raising money around an open source project is the best idea uh that's a whole other podcast to be honest but um you know but i do think that it's worth it to pursue monetization of your of your open source software, and I—I've done so heavily. Really tried to make it so that not only that I want to stick around and, and make sure these projects are in good health and are going to be taken care of and improved, but so that other people know that, um, you know, the ecosystems around them are healthy and that people really appreciate them. And that's where a lot of you know the creation of the Tanstack company. Uh, name and the open source umbrella called Tanstack and and all the sponsorship stuff that I've been pushing and and working with companies on, um, that's where kind of all that comes in. And to be honest, Tanstack makes me a decent side income right now, um, and it's extremely motivating. To when I get home from work from you know my startup, I kind of take off my nozzle hat and I say I'm going to wear the Tanstack hat for an hour or two tonight because it's that important to me to make sure that uh, that TanStack keeps running. So it's a good balance right now.
0: Yeah, and at some point, we need to have the conversation about sustainable open source software because too many times we think open source software means free. And also, maybe it doesn't do exactly what I need. And so you should change it and make it do the thing that I need it to do without really thinking how much effort that might uh, you know entail to implement the feature that maybe I or a handful of people need. And if we're th- talking and thinking about sustainable open source software, we need to know how we are ensuring that that software stays around. Is it providing monetization? Is it providing an an income? Is it providing sponsorship of some sort? Um I wonder if we can dig into one of the uh one of your projects. Uh I've got some some history and, and uh some trigger words around uh tables and, and and grids, so maybe not React Table, but uh maybe if we could dig into React Query and, and just uh, talk about what that is and, and what that might provide
3: our listeners. Yeah. You bet. Do you want to do you wanna go like get inquisitive about it or would you like me to kind of I don't know, sell it or something like that. Uh, well, you know?
0: Let's let's start high level. What what is React Query? What does it provide? And then maybe we can
3: dig into the particulars. Sure. Um, the easiest way to describe React Query is um, it's a library that uh, helps you fetch and update and synchronize asynchronous data. It's a very vague description, I know, but that's because it's it's very. It's it's a great utility. It's very flexible, right? So apart from the tagline of, you know, hey, fetching, updating, asynchronous data, uh, you know, what it is in technical terms is it is primarily hooks. And primarily one hook kind of out of the gate, you use one hook called use query, right? And this hook is super flexible, super powerful, where you essentially just give it a key that represents whatever data you are fetching. Uh, there's a lot about these keys that can get complex, right? You can give it just a string, or you can give it an array of multiple things or variables. Um, but at the end of the day, you're just giving it a some unique key to you know, identify the data you're fetching. And then you pass it a function that returns a promise that resolves that data. Uh, in simplest of terms, this is the only thing required to use React Query. You could do this... Basically everywhere in your app, and as long as your keys are consistent, um, you're going to get a couple of things out of the box without configuring anything. One, it serves as a cache for your entire app. So if you're requesting the same data a hundred times in a hundred different places across your app, it's only ever gonna result in one request to your backend per, you know, per component or not per component, but they all kind of get uh debounced and um that's the word I'm looking for. Uh deduplicated, right? And and you only get one network request, even though you have like hundred components on the page. So you get the cache. Um, and that means you get to avoid any global cache usage. You don't have to use Redux, you don't have to use providers, global state, anything like that. Just handled under the hood for you. And then the second thing you're going to get is there's a built-in lifecycle that sits behind this use query hook. Um and it lives across your entire app for every single uh, query key and the function that could go and fetch data, it's listening for specific user events. And when those events happen, it's automatically going and refetching that data that you have defined in the background and bringing it back and invisibly updating it in your application. So some of those user events might be uh, that you mounted a new a new version of that hook, of a same hook. So it says, oh, we got to go fetch new data, right? Or it could be that the user uh, blurred out of the browser window and then focused back into the browser window. That's kind of an indication that things need to be up to date. There, it, it could be that the network went offline and came back online. Um, you know, these are all kind of automatic events. It, there's also manual events that you can trigger. Uh, so if you, you know, you need to tell your application, Hey, I need to invalidate all of the user or team queries on the page. You can invalidate user or invalidate team queries and it will invalidate all, all of the queries kind of in that, in that hierarchy that you pass it and they'll just go out and revalidate in the background. So essentially you, you never see a loader other than the first render. And this is if you're not using suspense, right? If you're just, uh, going with the old ternary approach. So you you only see that loader the very first time because every time after that, you're going to have cached data coming in. And on top of the query APIs, there's so much to talk about with the querying, right? But there's also a mutation aspect of it where uh, there's a, mute, a use mutation hook that offers some nice life cycles and uh, some utilities around... Managing mutations so that when mutations have been completed or failed or or succeeded, you can either invalidate queries that are related to that mutation or optimistically update certain queries, you know, for things like a checkbox, some, you know, you'd probably want that checkbox to turn green right when the user clicks it, not wait for the server to you know come back and say oh okay it's green now (laughs) so there's a lot of utilities around this it's all about managing that a the the asynchronous state that comes from from asynchronous apis It, it could be a server i've seen people even use it for storage apis in the browser which are asynchronous so anything like that
0: are there any gotchas with using something like react query that that we need to be aware of is it is it uh cache invalidation or uh anything special with uh with defining and using keys? For
3: the most part, no. <laughs> uh and usually I'm very like pragmatic and down to earth about some things like if we were talking about React table or you know, I'd have some gotchas, but React query is is very um it's very forgiving. It's got uh I don't think it has a very steep learning curve. There's not really much you can't do with it. Um, there are some things where, you know, one, we're talking after you have experienced and grown to love 99% of React Query. Uh, it's, it's like replaced Redux for managing all this stuff. It's made your UI feel faster and your users feel like your app's faster. And maybe it's cut down on bandwidth or maybe it's increased it a little bit, but your app's more up to date. Like after all is said and done, there are a few situations where React Query might not fit the bill, right? Um, And one of those situations is if you have a user interface that is extremely dependent on normalization. So a good example I like to give people is TweetDeck. If you've ever used TweetDeck, it's basically Twitter on steroids. It's got like as many columns as you want across your screen And it's just constantly feeding tweets in, you know? And sometimes you'll have multiple tweets show up in, or one tweet show up in multiple columns, right? Because it's matching to uh, filters or something like that. Naturally, if you went to that tweet and you hit the like button, you would expect it to have a red heart appear in all of the other columns, right? That is where that's a situation where normalization would help a lot because it would mean you're only storing that individual tweet one time somewhere across your entire system, and this is actually what uh, tools like Apollo do uh, and Relay. Right, they're all nor- uh, normalized and and there it's it's easier to do that with those tools because they're built and they rely on GraphQL and the schema and you know knowing a lot about your objects react query is very agnostic it doesn't really know what a tweet is right but what it does know is you know you have assigned this data to this key so instead of prescribing and using a normalization strategy react query prescribes a an invalidation strategy and what that means is that there are certain use cases like this heart situation that we just can't know the exact state of that of the that individual tweet across all of our different queries on the screen. Each tweet deck column would be a separate query. Um, the easiest way to get that updated is just to say, fetch it from the server again. The server is going to know after we have hit that heart button, just fetch it again. It'll be, you know, a split second before those queries refetch in the background and that heart turns red. It's the same effect for the user, right? Maybe it won't be as fast and, you know, maybe you'll have multiple copies of that individual tweet across different, different tweet or, uh, you know, columns and queries, it's a really small use case that you rely on normalization that heavily, like I even just described Tweetdeck. you could get around it right with invalidation, and it would probably it'd probably feel great. If you really rely on normalization that heavily, then you are probably Facebook and you're using relay, <laughs> you know, or you're or you're doing something re- really, really low level like that. So I'm not going to that's probably the biggest con. Uh, of react query and it's not a big one you know so other than that we have it's got utilities for everything it can do pagination and infinite scrolling bidirectional infinite scrolling it's, it's got a lot of cool stuff
0: and you mentioned that that if we were to talk about react table and and maybe we can get past some of my my triggering on on past projects of uh tables and grids um why don't we we spend a, a a few minutes on React Table, and then you can tell us high level what that is, and then maybe some of the gotchas that, that some that uh, users and, and developers might need to be aware of.
3: Right, welcome to Table Therapy One Hundred and One.
0: Um, <laughs> we're
3: gonna get you past whatever it is those triggers are. Uh, React- can I build Excel with it? Oh. Don't build excel <laughs> that's my answer. just don't build excel you But know? that's
0: what everybody wants is everybody excel wants in the browser to do that
3: you know if you really want excel in the browser, there are great libraries that are like we will give you excel in the browser. They're like four hundred kilobytes like g zipped and you drop them into your app and you are you're dump trucking the a huge, awesome utility in your app, but it is a dump truck. So, um, yeah, don't try and build Excel. But you can get close. You can build some really cool stuff, right? If we're talking about filtering and grouping and sorting and even some aggregation hierarchy stuff, like this is all possible in React Table. So, at, at its heart, React Table originally was a table library where you would actually render you know react table and it would render this cool table and it's super pretty and it had theming and css and uh you know and along with all this awesome markup and styles came like 200 props like the biggest api you could have ever imagined uh there was an option for everything and if you wanted to override something you had to use a prop and it was overrides galore because React table was controlling the markup and the CSS and like the styles for everything it was rendering. So somebody's like, actually, I don't want the pagination on the bottom of the table. I want it at the top. And I'm like, oh, great. Well, you're going to have to override. I have to add more props, right? Here's some more props. So um, early on React table, and it was still popular. It got really popular even, even doing that. Just let this jet pass over my house here really quick. I live by an airbase, so it's perfect for streaming and recording. <laughs> um, so I was adding props for everything; it was ridiculous. So early on, I learned this lesson. Even after it was becoming popular, that I needed more something more sustainable. And I was using a library from built by Kent C Dodds. He actually just lives like an hour south of me. Um, we have lunch occasionally. He's a great guy. He built Downshift, which is a library for building select autocomplete experiences, multi-select stuff. And uh, it was headless. And I was like, I really like this approach. It's a utility, right? And he showed me kind of the render props approach where essentially you are doing everything that you would normally do in a a UI library except rendering UI. (laughs) It was like a light bulb went off, right? And so... After I discovered that, I was like, React Table needs to be this way. So I ripped out all of the markup and all the styles. And I turned React Table into a headless UI utility. What this means is that it's handling literally everything for you. All the state management, the callbacks, the events, uh, everything for you. The only thing that it does not do is attach the props to your markup. And by not doing this, it just won. It got rid of like a million issues in GitHub from people asking for props and options for things, right? But on it also allowed basically anybody to do anything they wanted with the table. Uh, the table then didn't really have to be a table. It's just really just data management that is catered towards tables. Um, so now you can do you know, you have your filtering and your sorting and your grouping and aggregation and all this stuff. And at the end of the day, you just kind of build your table however you want. You want to use material UI, use Bootstrap. You want to build your own. You could hook it up to a, a chart. Seriously, like you can hook it up to a chart for all I care. Uh, you, you just have to attach props in certain places and loop over some of the data model that React Table is producing. And it handles the rest for you. And it does it in a very performant way. So That's probably the biggest sell is that you have all these awesome features that normally people, you know, render an HTML table and they're like, sweet, it looks good. There's no sorting, there's no filtering, you know, it's not it's not interactive at all. And when they reach for those utilities, they might get a little bit from something like material UI. They have those, you know, built-in tables. And I you know what's funny is they're going full on table now too, right? They got their whole data grid coming on. But um, that they reach for those utilities and they, they're really kind of just in They're, they're very, I don't know. They're not very polished. So that's when I would say, grab react table, hook up your table state and just, you know, literally just dump it onto whatever table you have already. And it's just going to work great. And you don't have to change styles or markup and there's no themes and component overrides. That's it. Like that's react table. That's like, that's the best I can do to sell it. <laughs> That's the best I can do to sell the current version, version seven. So
0: Yeah. With with that, were there was that a I would imagine that was a pretty significant breaking change between yep. the the prior uh UI controlled version to the, yeah. the headless version. What what did that look like in rolling that out and, and gaining adoption there?
3: Oh, people were very angry with me.
1: <laughs> yeah, because the the worst of the worst is just CSS and and right. you you gave them yeah. that for free before. Yeah, people were the like have to make so. a table.
3: Yeah. Like how dare you <laughs> take away my kitchen sink, you know? And I'm like, "Sorry. Uh oh, if you want to drop in table here, like literally here's a copy paste. There you go. There's the markup from the old table." people are like, oh, and then they see all the ternaries and all the stuff that goes into building a great table and like, whoa, React Table was doing this, you know? And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's not a walk in the park, but now if you want to move your pagination around, you just do it. Or if you want to build five different versions of your table with different markup or whatever, you can do that too. So it took a, it took a little bit of time to convince people that this was the way to go. But now that we've gone down this path you know there's still a lot of libraries that stay head full. I don't know if that's even a word, but um, and they they stick with the component rendering and and they stick with that approach because they can control holistically control everything and make sure that it's perfect, you know, But for the most part, a lot of the developers de- the developers I work with or talk to, even at relatively large companies who are building complex projects, they want full control over their markup and their styles. And this is why now React Table is used all over the place. You probably didn't even know it, but huge product Retool is a project. Here I am. I'm selling Retool, right? <laughs> uh, no, Retool is a cool, a cool uh, application. But they they do like internal tools, workflows, and stuff. They use React Table in all of their tables because they can control everything. And they basically have built Excel, right? You ever use like Airtable, like? You could probably build an air table with React table, and you know the other thing too now that it's public i I can say something, but GitHub, you know how they're rolling out this new beta issues view for you know it's like you can view all of your issues in a table, your pull requests, and like move things around. It's all written in React table, so GitHub contacted me I don't know how long ago, and they're like, "We are rewriting the issues interface to use React table. What can you tell us? I said it's going to be great." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, can we get your help? And I said, I don't have time, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be around for questions and whatnot. And Jay Clem, I think, is his handle. He's been working on it a lot, but yeah, really cool stuff. So it's it's amazing what you can do when you have headless UI is all I can say.
1: So um, that kind of uh, makes me interested in React Charts. Uh, how How is that working and is that similar?
3: react charts is not headless (laughs) 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 that'd (laughs) be interesting right tool for the right job am I right you want headless charts if you really want headless charts you got it D3 that's a headless chart okay you actually that's not headless that's just like raw you want headless charts go use VizX right because they're like they got all the D3 utilities wrapped up into kind of build your own compose your own even then VX is heavy You know, like I'm not interested in composing charts at that level. I'm interested and I I want, you know, React charts is interesting. I said, what is the 80% use case for a chart? XY coordinate chart. There's not a whole lot you can't do with an XY coordinate chart. And if you got something outside of that, then go use D3. But for the most part, it's like XY coordinate, time series, bar charts, column charts, areas, right? These are all, like, they all fit kind of in the same space. So I was like, let's build a library that can just handle the 80% use case and just do it really, really well, like, and give you all the bells and whistles for nothing, right? So React Charts is a library where you basically just say, here's a chart, here's my XY coordinate style data, here's my axes, and you know, you do, you have to define very little uh, out of the gate. Just like React Query, you get a lot for free out of the box. You can configure everything, you know, but um, out of the box, you'll get like cursors. So hovering crosshairs on your chart, you'll get tooltips for free. It's hyper responsive or I don't know what they say, container responsive these days. I was doing hyper-responsive before container queries were even a thing. So um, hyper-responsive is like you just dump it into an element and it just fills whatever the space is. It doesn't matter the, the size of the window. It matters the size of the, you know, component. So your sidebar is moving in and out. Your charts are resizing. It's really cool. So you get all of that for free and you get an interaction model with it. It's built on SVG so you can do clicks and hovers and you can sync up all these charts and you can have like 20 or 30 of them on a page. And if you hover over one, the crosshairs appear on the other and they're all kind of like all synced together. There's a lot that goes into having a good user experience with a chart that goes beyond just, I need a grid and I want to draw some lines. So that's where react charts is going is, is just trying to be really, really good at that 80% use case So you can just move on with your life. Like you want to build a dashboard. You should not have to spend time learning D3 or VizX, uh, you know, to get charts. And then you got to spend another couple months trying to perfect the way that they work together and mm -mm, not enough time. There's not enough time in the day to do all that. I just can't, I can't stand it. So that's why react charts exists. even if no one else uses react charts it is saving my butt at nozzle like <laughs> all of our charts every, down to the sparkline is a is a react chart oh it's and i'm just like render it and i know it's going to be a great experience so okay
0: so what's what's next for you tanner i know that you said you you wear a couple of hats you wear your your nozzle hat during the day you wear your tan stack hat at night or any other hats that you put on from time to time or what's what what's uh what's keeping your interest uh, these
3: days? (laughs) You know, I had, I have some other projects in mind, some things I'm working on. Um, I'm dabbling with bringing back one of my old libraries that didn't quite stick around for a while, React Form. Um, I'm trying to decide if I'm either going to replace all of my forms with um, Informed, which is a library built by a good friend of mine, Joe Puzo. He works at Tesla now. I've been going over some form library constraints and API design with him to make sure that it's going to fit. If it does, I'm going to go with that. If it doesn't, then I'll probably bring back React form, which is something I don't really want to do. But if I have to, I have to. Uh, We're doing a lot with JSON schema now and OpenAPI, so I would want it to play great with that. Uh, Other things on the horizon... You know, I am looking into building a, like a a client-side only enterprise router for React. I know we got React router and it's great. Um, and they're going all into Remix and, you know, kind of this hybrid server side thing. And that's good. Um, I like what they're doing with that. But when it comes to client-side apps that are just all client-side and very, very heavy on url state you know and think about like when you go to aws or google cloud you look at that url at the top of the screen and it's just like chuck full of information right i'm talking about being able to bring that enterprise router state to the masses for react and just say this makes it really easy you know store your state here and everything will be fine so um and we're talking like I'm really teasing it right now. I haven't even really started working on like the guts of it, but I have the constraints and the ideas and the concepts all mapped out. But we're talking about like uh, URL schemas. So designing your URL schema as you would a database. Um, here are the available routes and paths and everything that's available. Uh, having the appropriate types for those things, having them all strictly typed in TypeScript, and then also being able to kind of update and roll through schemas. So... You change your URL schema. You want bookmarks that people had in your app from two years ago to keep working. So you have uh, updates and and rollback uh, kind of migration utilities between these schemas. Um, really big router problems that you don't think about when you're just building a blog or building you know, your little to-do app, right? Uh, probably don't even think about when you're medium-sized either. You probably don't need to. People get away with just, ah, oh, it's a filter. I'm going to stick it in the search param and I'm good to go. Um, but like I have dashboards where people are exploring data, like lots of data, and every little chart has state and everything. And I need it so that when people share that URL, it is replicated 100% for the other person that gets that URL. And I don't want to have to go through like any link sharing service or anything like that. I just want it all in the URL, stateless and versioned. And that's kind of where I'm heading. So I hope man, that's a that's a really good teaser. Actually I should probably like get this recording and kind of like write all the all that down. Cause I've never <laughs> I've never been able to like put it into like good terms like that before. So maybe that means things are clicking into place. Nice. Well I'm
0: glad we could help uh, facilitate the the brainstorming session here.
3: <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and for other queries really or for other queries, for other topics really quick, I'll talk about React query. It's kind of mostly just in small feature mode right now. I have a great maintainer. His name is Dominic Dorfmeister TK dodo. Um, I sponsor him because he is amazing. He's great. He's helping React query just stay up to date and stay great uh, so we're not nothing's really happening on the react query front because it doesn't really need to at this point we are we are very softly looking into normalization tactics that may or may not even come to fruition. Um, cause again, a lot of people don't need them. Um, react table is getting a rewrite. I've been rewriting it for like a year. It's a lot of work, but it's going to be a major rewrite version eight. just going to come with a lot of improvements. TypeScript mainly is the biggest one. Um, and then, uh, just kind of improving the API, fixing longstanding bugs, right? React charts needs documentation. If you guys want to write some docs, let me know. <laughs> And yeah, I, th- I think that's it for those projects. There's React Virtual. We haven't talked about that, but.
1: Yeah, so uh, speaking of documentation, uh, is there a place where our listeners and anyone else could go to get resources or do you have any resources that you would recommend uh, for people who want to like, pick up these libraries, React Query, React Table, React Charts? I know we didn't talk about it, React Virtual. Um,
3: yeah, you can just go to tanstack.com. And there will be a little section there with all the all the libraries. They go straight to the documentation sites for those. Uh, I'm really proud of the docs for React Query. Uh, really easy to get going there. Um, there is, there's even some great content from TK Dodo on using React Query uh, that you should probably look at if you're learning React Query. Also, I have... Uh, I guess I, I don't know if I could tease this, but uh, coming out probably in a month there's going to be some really good new learning material coming out. I'm partnering with a a new, a new partner on learning material. I have, a, I have a course right now, React Query Essentials. It's great. It's, it's meant for version 2. Not a lot changed from version 2 to version 3. Uh, but, you know, it could definitely use an update. And I don't want to be a course educator for the rest of my life I don't want to do it and as soon as you commit I mean you're in you got to be that for the rest of your life or figure something out so I'm partnering up with some some really awesome people who are going to be delivering like a top-notch first-class education experience for react query it's going to be big so um, stick around for that one you can go subscribe to my newsletter and you'll probably get a discount code for you know whenever that comes out But yeah, tanstack.com, everything's there. I'm not so proud of the docs for React Table, but that's changing soon. So,
2: What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers?
3: Obviously, I'm biased. I can only really give advice for the things that I've experienced. Um, So I will do exactly that. Uh, The things that have leveled up my career, I feel, are... You know, one being put in actively putting myself into situations with difficult problems. Uh, Joining a startup where I was the only person on the front end made me wear a lot of hats and grow very quickly, sometimes uncomfortably fast. (laughs) Uh, You know that that's a big. It's putting yourself in positions that's going to force you to learn is great. Um, Second, I I think open source has been a really big learning path for me as well. It has taught me. Not just how to build open source, but just how to build better software in general. It's taught me how to work better in teams, mitigate discussions, mitigate you know disagreements between other people. It's also helped me um, with uh, just building high quality code. Even if you're building tool internal tools or another component, you need to be able to design that component so that it's it's reusable and great. So, yeah, that's been a, that's been a really big help to me.
1: Where can our listeners go to follow you and keep um, keep up with what you're working on?
3: Tanstack.com. Sign up for the newsletter. But my favorite is just go follow me on Twitter. It's at Tanner Lindsley.
0: All right. Uh, thanks so much, Tanner. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today.
3: Hey, that's the life, right? I got a startup, and I've got uh, you know, I've got all the Tanstack open source stuff, and I got two kids, so it's it's a full house. But you know, it keeps me keeps me tired. <laughs>
2: That was Tanner Lindsley. Tanner builds open source software that is currently used by hundreds of thousands of developers at companies ranging from Fortune 500 companies all the way down to startups and indie developers. He has a focus in JavaScript using React, remote and server state management, data grids and tables, data visualization, and enterprise application architecture. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes.
1: Find show notes, blog posts, and more at
2: sixfiguredev.com.
1: And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev.
0: This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Callaway. I'm
1: Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash.